coming up on today's episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. I wouldn't have paid you for an Oscar Mayer bologna eater, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's my comfort food from back in the day when my mom would make um, fried bologna sandwiches with white bread and you know, and so you're clicking through and you have a, a third party, you know, kind of a delivery person bringing it to your door. If that was made somewhere completely separate from Chick-fil-A, are you being duped? So for the first time, really, since World War II, we're seeing a contraction in the number of SKUs available in grocery stores and online. Yeah, I almost bought Cheez-Its the other day, but instead I bought the, uh, the little crackers that are cheese crackers with peanut butter in between. That's probably an improvement. I don't know, maybe. I don't know it's any better. Coming to you from St. Petersburg, Florida, you're listening to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast, the show that's the authority on where to eat in St. Pete. Here are your hosts, Kevin Godby and Lori Brown. Hi, I'm Kevin Godby. And I'm Lori Brown. Thank you for tuning in today. Welcome to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast, the podcast that's it when it comes to restaurants and food information in St. Pete. And be sure to check out our website, stpetersburgfoodies.com. There you'll find great information, including restaurant reviews, the largest St. Pete happy hour list ever created and kept updated, and information on the newest restaurants in town. We are locals that live in downtown St. Pete, and we've been eating our way through this town for years, so you don't have to, but you should. We have a new episode every Tuesday. Just hit the subscribe button, and you'll get notified when an episode is ready for download. And then you can listen to them anytime you want, like on your morning jog or commute to work. On today's show, our featured guest is the food business reporter at the Washington Post, and also the former Tampa Bay Times food critic, Laura Riley. Laura has been reporting on the many interesting food trends, both on the grocery and restaurant sides, caused by or accelerated by the pandemic. After Laura, we stroll over to Greenstock, our favorite salad place for lunch. We We have have a great great show, show, so so stick around. Ramen is the ultimate comfort food and Booyah Ramen on the 900 block of Central Avenue is my go-to. It's so freaking good. The broth is like a silky blanket to warm up your mouth, and the hearty proteins, or just mushrooms for vegetarians, it'll have you saying, ooh, mommy, the umami is making my eyes roll back in my head. My favorites are the pork belly and the short rib. Mmm. And then there's the noodles. O-M-G. Go get the best ramen in St. Pete at Booyah Ramen at 911 Central Avenue in the Edge District of downtown St. Pete. Do ya, Booyah? Hey foodies, do you know about the Zest podcast? If you're listening to us, you should be listening to them too. They're part of the Tampa NPR station WUSF 89.7. On the Zest, you'll learn new recipes, baking tips, and barbecue secrets. You'll hear about what's ripe, what's growing, and what's in season. The Zest Podcast is hosted by Robin Sussingham, an award-winning reporter and producer who's also an avid home cook and baker. Robin's a native Floridian and has been searching out flavors and the fascinating stories behind them from Key West to Pensacola. Learning to care for a sourdough starter and learning to bake sourdough breads really 
speaks to people in a very deep way. It's part of our collective history and we're getting back to our roots and our self-sufficiency. Just like us, The Zest podcast does interviews with chefs and restaurateurs and talks about food and recipes covering the Tampa Bay area and throughout Florida. It's what we listen to when we're not doing our own show. Check out The Zest podcast at thezestpodcast.com. Please welcome Tampa Bay resident and food business reporter at the Washington Post, Miss Laura Riley. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me today. And this is your second time with us. The first time was episode 27, and now we're on episode 107. And the first one was back on March 5th, 2019, which is also your birthday. And we recorded it in February 2019 on your last day on the job as the food critic for the Tampa Bay Times. And you've done a lot of stuff, which in one way could make this the hardest interview, but at the same time makes it the easiest interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Smart people are easier to interview. <laughs> Not that we interview dumb people. That's so dumb. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to mention a few things that you've done just so uh, people know, and then they can hear a lot more on the first interview we did with you. And I encourage everyone to go back and find that one. Yeah, that was a great interview. You've been a food critic at the Tampa Bay Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and the Baltimore Sun. You graduated culinary school. I'm told by Janet Keeler last week that you worked in restaurants too. I did. Authored books, won journalism awards. You've done investigative food reporting, the most famous one, Farm to Fable. That pissed off some people. (laughs) (laughs) And... You've been with the Washington Post for just over a year and a half now. And have you got to meet Jeff Bezos? I have not. He keeps a very low profile. I've never seen him in the newsroom. Keep, just <laughs> keep your eyes peeled just in case. I'd recognize him. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so after being a food critic for decades, your beat is now food business, which I find quite interesting because I think most people rarely or maybe even never think about how the food got to the restaurant table or to the grocery store. And so much happened before it got there. Right, exactly. And I admit, I, I a lot of times don't think about that until I see you posting your, your new articles. Yeah, we've learned a lot by reading your stuff. Yeah. So, you know, so on the one hand, we know the many obvious downsides to the pandemic. But on the other hand, it gets food stories on the front page of the largest, one of the largest national newspapers. I don't think anyone has thought about the words supply chain or blockchain with as much enthusiasm as we have in the past six months. So yeah, it's brought it's brought kind of our food system to the fore in a way that maybe for a lot of people, they've never had to think about. Yeah, there was, I'm going to steal your funny line that we chuckled about when we listened to the recent Washington Post podcast that we, you were on, but the, um, the great toilet paper debacle of 2020. <laughs> we all lived in fear for a few weeks there. <laughs> I know. It was longer we like, than weeks. We it just, was months. We were just driving around town looking for toilet paper. I actually bought toilet paper in a drive through from a gas station. I know. And it felt like Christmas Day, right? It did. That was only a four pack. <laughs> yeah. So that was like the first thing that we noticed was there's no toilet paper on the shelves. But then I think I, the next thing I noticed was no chicken. Yeah, sure. 
that's like the easiest thing to make at home. Well, and, and yeast and flour. And, you know, we've had all kinds right. of incredibly odd. I mean, their eggs for a while went through the roof and were hard to find. So, yeah, it's been a series of uh, unfortunate events in terms of our grocery store experience. It's crazy. And and I couldn't get Oscar Mayer bologna. They had, hadn't had it for a week, my chef shopper told me. Huh. <laughs> I wouldn't have paid you for an Oscar Mayer bologna eater, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's my comfort food from back in the day when my mom would make um, fried bologna sandwiches with white bread and, and mustard, and I just felt like it that where, day. Where did you grow up? That sounds like a like a Pittsburgh thing or a Baltimore thing. It's a Georgia Pittsburgh? thing, actually. Oh. Yeah, my mom. Well, my mom's from Georgia. I grew up here, though. I grew up in Clearwater. Gotcha. But that was her thing. She would make that for us. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things that that I find you know, when you really start looking at things is I'm talking about the restaurant side now is that some restaurants obviously are struggling and some struggling a lot, but then others have found opportunities. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're way far away from really seeing how it's all going to shake out. And unfortunately, I think right. that there's a lot of evidence that there will be some widespread failure um, in among restaurants and bars. Um, you know, I mean, it's been kind of a stutter step thing because of PPP loans, because of kind of small business loans, because of the unemployment bump. Um, I don't think that the real pain has been experienced yet for a lot of people because of some of these little prop ups. But the, the New York uh, Restaurant Association just put out a, a study this past week that said, of their the people that they surveyed, more than sixty percent of restaurateurs in New York State said they anticipate failing by December unless there's some kind of large wow. scale bailout. Yeah. So you know the the there's a lot of pain yet to happen. But you're right. I mean, I, I think a lot of people who've pivoted effectively to delivery, especially if they have their own app. I mean, Chipotle, Cheesecake Factory, the the ones that have strong user-friendly apps um, so that you can order direct from those restaurants, they've done really well. Right. Right. And they, so they can do it without having to pay the fees of the delivery services. So those third-party aggregators, DoorDash, you know, Postmates, et cetera, Uber Eats, no one's really figured out how to make money. I mean, they're not making money. They've been propped up by VC money since the beginning. And clearly the restaurateurs get a, you know, a 30% haircut right off the top you know, by and large. Right. So mm -hmm. no one's quite figured out how that's going to look moving forward, that those third-party aggregators uh, in all likelihood will go away and be replaced with, you know, the restaurants themselves having some kind of, you know, hybrid version of online ordering and, and some delivery service. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, at some point, somebody's got to say, okay, when, when are we going to just stop doing something where we're just losing money hand right. over fist. And one example of that here was uh, Urban Brew and Barbecue, I believe. Mm -hmm. They were the first ones to do that. They created their own online delivery. Yeah, it takes a, they know, were doing a lot of infrastructure. And, and by and large, a lot of the, the, the people that can do it effectively are usually larger players, you know, with multi-units. Yes. So it's hard for the yes. independent we, to, to make that work. It is, but we also have, saw a good example of um, an independent here in downtown. Il Retorno did a fantastic job of quickly adapting um, to takeout, which they didn't do a lot of before. But um, we actually ate in their 
recently and they sat us at the chef's bar because they're not really using the chef's table for anything. We were the only ones sitting there and we watched, I can't tell you how many takeout orders. They had a whole counter like dedicated yeah, to constantly. it. Well, that's yeah. good to hear. And I haven't been to their new, their salad concept. How's that doing? Oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah. yeah. They're doing yeah. good. They uh, typically, they do it, they chop the salads, but we learned that we actually like them not chopped, just tossed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sounds good. And we're actually going there for lunch after this. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that this discussion leads to one of the trends that I think, and I think some of the trends like delivery is a trend, uh, ghost restaurants is a trend. I think mm-hmm. they were already trending prior to pandemic. They and were, correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, but then the, the pandemic has accelerated them. Yeah. And, and it really does open up a lot of questions. So there, there are concepts that have had underutilized kitchens, you know, brick and mortar restaurants where they've gone to 50% or 25% of usual business. And that leaves a lot of kitchen staff twiddling their thumbs. So they've launched virtual brands out of existing brick and mortar kitchens as kind of, you know, ancillary revenue streams. And, And that's been effective for a lot of concepts. And then there are the whole idea, the idea of ghost kitchens, where it's like a warehouse kind of, you know, whole bunch of little 400 square foot kitchens in these big warehouses that are churning out virtual only brands, or it's kind of, you know, franchise 2.0, or they are creating food. They're third party creators of food for brands that, you know, so something like Chick-fil-A will subcontract out to one of these ghost kitchens so that basically the people, yeah, the people making your food are not employees of Chick-fil-A. They are not doing it from a Chick-fil-A kitchen. It's a third party uh, producer using the recipes from Chick-fil-A and basically paying Chick-fil-A kind of a kickback um, to deliver that via DoorDash or whatever. So it's a really interesting time that you kind of start wondering about, you know, what's, is it catfishing? You know, I mean, are you, if you're going online, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going online, you're like, oh, Chick-fil-A, I'm in the mood. You know, and so you're clicking through and you have a a third party, you know, kind of a delivery person bringing it to your door. If that was made somewhere completely separate from Chick-fil-A, are you being duped? I mean, are you being given the real deal? And it's a it's a real it's kind of almost like a, you know, kind of an an existential question. You know, Um, just uh, what Mm -hmm. what what are we um, what is real at this point? Yeah, that's really interesting. That's one that I had not known about. I missed that. And and then you have things like um, Domino's where they have all of these mobile. I mean, they're really an IT company now, you know, so that they're they have all of these mobile in parking lot, these kind of little robotic kiosks that are making the the pizzas so that the radius, you know, so that basically the, the old commissary kitchen idea of one central spot and then kind of spokes on the wheel delivery doesn't work, you know, if it takes the food half an hour or 40 minutes to get to you. So you want a whole bunch right. of mm-hmm. tiny dots all over an urban setting where that pizza is being fabricated and has to go just, you know, 10 blocks or something. But it makes for all of these right. really weird places, you know, where you essentially have, you know, these unmarked uh, trailers in parking lots producing food just for, for digital. So yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. Yeah. And now, what are the differences between there's dark kitchens, ghost kitchens, virtual restaurants, and cloud kitchens? So cloud kitchen is really a brand. It's the Travis 
whatever his name is, the Uber guy, guy. kind of disgraced Uber Mm -hmm. former CEO, um, has put all kinds of money in and raised all kinds of money for this cloud kitchen idea. And, you know, people are saying it's, I've heard lots of industry experts say, oh, this is the next Amazon, you know, that the idea of, of, you know, launching these big Mm -hmm. warehouses where you're the landlord and you have 20 different, uh, you know, vendors in your space. Um, and you can sometimes you control the the distribution, the you know, delivery part of it. And, and within those vendors, you know, they can turn a concept on and off depending on time of day or what's trending or, you know, all kinds of things. So dark kitchens, ghost kitchens are kind of the same thing. So offsite or like we said, a, like a restaurant within a, re- a restaurant kind of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and then virtual, right. I mean, virtual concepts is just anything that doesn't have a brick and mortar. And for some of those, it may be. You know, like Beefo Brady's just tried to uh, just tried out basically a chicken concept. Chicken sandwiches are like king right now. It's like the fastest growing segment. So they just tried out for the summer for eight weeks. They did a trial in their existing kitchens uh, for something called the hatchery. So it's a you know chicken sandwich concept. And right. it did really well. And so they just last week launched a brick and mortar. So it sometimes it's kind of an incubator oh, wow. for a concept they're trying out. Um, so it's a kind of a right. no cost way of, of a trial balloon. Um, so, you know, right. all yeah. of this is really interesting and, and, you know, kind of hopeful and incremental income for existing restaurants. But a lot of industry people say it is going to kill the, the independent mom and pop, that those restaurants are going to basically die a grisly death because people are so Ouch. willing to pivot to delivery. Right. Yeah. Laura, we're going to take a quick break, get a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back in two minutes with some more super interesting conversation on food supply and food trends. We'll be right back. Hey, Lori, have you ever been to Noble Crust? I have. What do you like there? Pork belly, pimento cheese, and fried green tomatoes are my favorite. Oh, yeah. I love that one, too. They actually call it the FGBLT. It's fried green tomatoes, pork belly glazed with a Tabasco honey sauce and pimento cheese. Mm-hmm. And it's the first item on the menu, so you can't miss it. And I think they should actually call it the OMG. Yeah, you've said that before. The chicken marsala is really good too. It has chicken and chicken sausage, criminy mushrooms and four cheese grits. It's so delicious. I love that they mix classics from the American Deep South and Italy. Noble Crust is famous for their fried chicken. I love it. Yeah, and the eggplant parmesan is out of this world. When we do a best eggplant parm list, it'll definitely be on there. Yes, it will. Speaking of lists, Noble Crust made six of them recently. Best Italian, Best Casual Dining, Best Pizza, Best Bloody Marys, Best Meatballs, and, believe it or not, Best Salads. Ooh, ooh, can I tell you another one of my favorite items? Yeah. The spaghetti and meatballs. It's so good. Man, you're not kidding. You know what? They have a brunch on Saturdays and Sundays starting at 1030, which I love. And the deviled eggs are to die for. Let's go to Noble Crust right now. I'm in. Let's do it. One of our favorite places to go eat in St. Pete is Engine Number 9. They've been a staple in downtown St. Pete coming up on seven years, and they are famous for their unique and tasty burger creations. As a matter of fact, they are on the St. Pete foodies list of best burgers in St. Pete, they also made the best hot dogs list, the best chilies, and the best wings in St. Pete. 
Aside from the food, Engine Number no. 9 is a great sports bar with lots of TVs, beer, and wine. And you can even get a regular old cheeseburger, too, so you can bring your non-adventurous eater friends. Check out Engine Number no. 9 at the corner of MLK and 1st Avenue North in downtown St. Pete. Their burgers can't be beat. We are back with Laura Riley, the food business reporter at the Washington Post. And many of you may remember her from the Tampa Bay Times, too. And speaking of Tampa, Tampa Bay, so have you been uh, working from home this whole yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. Basically, in I mean, the Post has never been enthusiastic about remote work. They kind of feel like the magic happens when we're all, you know, piled together in a big room. But uh since, mm-hmm. I, I yeah, since the pandemic started, everyone has remote worked and, and it looks like it's going to go that way through the end of the year. So I've been back in Tampa, you know, pretty much the entirety of it. Nice. I don't think it's affected your work in a poor In any way. Well, yeah. You know, <laughs> got to get the, 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 yeah. the yeah. annual yeah. review and see what they say. <laughs> yeah. So another trend is obviously people eating outside more. And, and I think in one, I don't remember which of your articles this was mentioned in, but I think you were quote quoting a restaurateur who said that people just, they're coming to pick up the food, but then they bring like folding chairs and sit out in the parking lot and eat it there. (laughs) You know, people just, people love to get out of the house. I think that, that that's one of the biggest, uh, you know, problems with where we've been for the past six months is we just need to get out somewhere, you know? And I think that that you're seeing these kind of you know, in the parking lot tables set up. I mean, obviously in, in a city like New York, there's been, there have been some problems and that, you know, pedestrians or, or diners, sidewalk diners have been hit by cars um, because of that. Right. Eight or nine, you know, no fatalities, but some, some fairly substantial injuries because of the, the sidewalk dining that's emerged. So I don't know if you've seen what they've done here in downtown St. Pete, but where the restaurants that have the sidewalk dining, they've put up where the parking spaces are next to that sidewalk. They put up uh, like the concrete barriers to create more outdoor seating sure. space. Yeah. You know, at least where we live, we'll have many more months of dining outside. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to COVID numbers in November in, you know, kind of Northeastern cities as people kind of, you know, where there's only so much kind of heat lamping you can do before, you know, everyone gets <laughs> yeah. back That's indoors. very true. It's not easy to use utensils with mittens on. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we're actually entering the outdoor dining phase because I can't eat outside right yeah, now. It's too hot. So, yeah. But yeah, we broke a story a week or so ago. Grace Restaurant and Pass a Grill, they are opening a new location that will be called Two Graces. And they are taking over what used to be the reading room, but they are expanding that whole, they have a big outdoor space that is going to become eating space. Oh, They're building like several pergolas around the garden area. Um, and they're going to be very large pergolas. So it's going to give them enough seating with the indoors, the patio that was underutilized by the reading room and the pergolas that they'll have, they'll hit the 150 mark to be able to get their liquor license. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And he's, is it Marlon? Yeah, I can't it, remember. What, what's the guy's name? Yeah. Yeah. They're Marlon yeah, Kaplan. They, are, they yeah. are great operators and, and Grace has always been kind of a gem over there in, a, in an area where there isn't a lot of great dining generally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We agree. So earlier I mentioned that uh, one of the 
positive things with the pandemic is we're getting food stories on the front page of national newspapers. And you had one on the front page of the Washington Post, I think it was a week or so ago. Yeah. A grocery shopping kind of a, yes. Yeah. You know, I'd done, I'd done so many supply chains, so many grocery store type stories about specifically, you know, what's happening right this second, but it made me think, how is the pandemic shaping our shopping habits in a way that may in fact change what's on offer and what manufacturers are producing. Um, and it turns out yeah, there, and, there yeah. and there's winners and losers. In Absolutely. There. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the, the, during the pandemic, you know, the past six months, a lot of the big companies, so whether that's, you know, General Mills or ConAgra or Campbell's, they've really focused on their dominant brands and dropped mm-hmm. the, the SKUs, you know, the barcodes for kind of, right. you know, secondary or like other flavors or the also ran kind of products. So for the first time, really, since World War II, we're seeing a contraction in the number of SKUs available in grocery stores and online. So, yeah, right. I mean, it, it's it's an interesting thing to think about that that this thing that we've just been through may lead to less innovation in terms of new products or new food categories. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you say SKUs, that stands for stock keeping units. In other words, items. There's less Yeah, items, just the, you know, the barcode variety. that goes bloop, bloop when it's barcode. on the conveyor belt. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, and also because of, um, you know, a lot of times new products get debuted at things like the Fancy Food Show or Expo West or or even things like, you know, sporting events or Bonnaroo or, you know, a lot of times you'll find new ice cream brand or, you know, a new pea protein chip or something like that being kind of trial ballooned at at an event like that um, as a way of, of then showing grocery store chains that there's an appetite for whatever the thing is. And because all of that stuff has been closed and as well as like tasting stations at Costco or whatever, um, it's changed the ability for a new product or a new, you know, fledgling company to get their name out there and to, to, you know, trial some things. So I I think that we're going to see, you know, a change in what's available. Right. Right. but at the same time, do you think now that would make for these uh, upstarts, I guess, or new products, make Facebook and other social media more important to them to try to get some kind of platform to get attention? Absolutely. But, you know, we're, we're, we've really moved more towards ordering online. And one thing that, that we all, you know, I, I certainly am in this category. One thing we do is we start with a previous cart. You know what I mean? We don't start with an empty cart. We oh, right. what did we get last time? And so then you're more you're more taking mm-hmm. things out of your cart than putting things in, and that is going to augur for what you bought last time. And you know, one of the guys right. I talked to said online shopping is more like spear phishing. You know, you type in Heinz ketchup. You know, it's not an an opportunity for serendipity for browsing. You know, and then so basically you're kind of you're in a, in a much more targeted way buying things than, than right. you would be in the grocery store aisle. And that... Yeah, it cuts down on the impulse. Yeah, oh, impulse totally buying. impulse buy. You know, we've, yeah. we've, we've seen a real change in, in that. Although not that we're not eating garbage food. I mean, we're eating plenty of snacks during the pandemic. <laughs> um, but it also online, it, it allows companies to target market directly to us, you know, to be, to become mm-hmm. tops, top of search. I mean, if you're someone who eats super healthfully, you are going to be targeted with products that fit that profile. 
Um, whereas for, right. for those of us who have like spent, you know, who've eaten our feelings for the past six months and are buying a lot of like Cheez-Its and, you know, red vines, you are going to be targeted with a lot more of the same. So it really does mean that right. there's this kind of bifurcation in the system in terms of, you know, healthy eating and unhealthy eating, unfortunately. Right. Right. Yeah. I almost bought Cheez-Its the other day, but instead I bought the, uh, the little crackers that are cheese crackers with peanut butter in between. That's probably an improvement. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's any better. One thing I was um, mentioning to Kevin, I actually have been talking about this for a few weeks and I posted it on Facebook yesterday. I have noticed, because I always, I've bought Charmin for years and I've also bought Viva paper towels for years. They're just my favorites. And for some reason, I've been saying it for the last few weeks to Kevin, I said, this Charmin does not feel the same as it did pre-COVID. It feels like it's rougher and more one ply than two. And the same thing with the paper towels. They feel thinner. I think that, I think that it's very possible that uh, product formulation is changing just to expedite stuff. I mean, people are I, early on during the po- toilet paper issue, everyone was saying, well, no one's going to the bathroom more. It's like, well, yeah, actually, we're <laughs> all paying for our own toilet paper for the first time, right? I mean, if you're home, we're right. all buying toilet paper. Where we're buying it ch- has changed. You know, we used to stick right. it to the man and we occasionally go to the bathroom at work. Right. So, uh, but yeah, toilet yeah. paper in a, in a, you know, a restaurant or your office setting or whatever, it's a different supplier. It's a different ply. It's, um, right. you know, usually it's a different size roll than you could use at home. So mm-hmm. there's probably, there's an enormous stockpile of industrial size toilet paper rolls somewhere that are not viable for, for, uh, you know, residential consumers. Yeah, I didn't even think about it that way, but that's yeah. true. I, but I've also noticed we buy the stevia in the raw packets for coffee, and I usually was great with three, and now I have to use four, and it feels like there's less in the packet. And Kevin didn't buy into that until just recently. He goes, oh, my God, you're right. Oh. Well, I wonder, I mean, are the packets just a little smaller? They're not any smaller. You're not getting more, and you're paying the same price. So it's kind of. It's weird. Like it, I, and I posted this on Facebook, and people were agreeing with me that they'd noticed these things too. So it was interesting. Huh. Interesting comments. <laughs> we'll have to do an investigation. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of investigations, you told me that you're working on a, a new one on how farm workers are uniquely vulnerable, vulnerable to COVID and how their infection numbers have been underreported. So yeah, the the CDC has um, been tracking all of the meat processing facility outbreaks and other kinds of food industry um, outbreaks in in factories, but they have not tracked farm worker outbreaks. And some of that is because we've got about you know 1.5 million undocumented farm workers who are very leery about getting tested, about you know being contacted by authorities because of their immigration status. Um, right. Getting on the radar. In any yeah. Right. And so that's been problematic, but also there, because a lot of times these are migratory people, um, a lot of States have been very late to figure out a game plan in terms of required PPE and what they're going to demand growers to, to provide. Um, and often because it's a transient problem, they kind of don't do any, they sit on their hands until the, the group has moved on. You know, they're eight weeks here, eight weeks there, and it's easy enough to kind of tread water while your, your workers are in Immokalee and then whoops, they're gone. They're up in, you know, North Carolina or whatever. So we've had a lot of 
outbreaks that have been underreported. Um, and, you know, a lot of states have been just really behind in terms of mandating mask wearing, et cetera. And then you also have a situation, you know, obviously a lot of farm workers are working outdoors, but, you know, you have these moments in the day or, uh, you know, situations like, first of all, a lot of farm workers um, live in congregate housing. So they live all together and they don't, there's not a way to social distance in those situations. And then they get up every morning and they get on basically a school bus uh, where there's no social distancing and go to the job site. And so it's, and then, you know, at break time, they're all crowded into the same shade spot. You know, there's very little shade. So you're, you know, you get these kind of little clusters of people that are tightly together under a shade tree. Um, And then Friday payday, they're lined up in back of a pickup waiting for their checks. So there's just a lot of, unfortunately, built into the system, an inability to socially distance uh, effectively. And then once people have gotten sick, you know, a lot of times these are, are workers who don't generally go see doctors. So they may have pre-existing, you know, kind of lifestyle related diseases, you know, obesity or diabetes or heart health problems. And then they they get a positive diagnosis and their the grower, their boss says, you know, either hush it up and come to work anyway, or there's no way for them to spend two weeks in, in self-quarantine. Um, so, you know, they're moving on and, and infecting other people. So it's it's a real problem um, that's basically been kind of marching from south to north in the U.S. as, you know, as the, the harvest season has progressed. Right. 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 Wow. Yeah. And that, that's another one of those things that I think most people don't think about. No. Yeah. You no. think, oh, they're outdoor workers, you know, how, it doesn't seem like a, a problematic situation, but it really is because of all the other things that feed into their, their lifestyle, you know, their living conditions. And, you know, a lot of times they're put up in these big, almost like pole barns, you know, in bunk beds, you know, and, and a lot of state regulators have said, oh, we'll put up shower curtains between the bunks. Like, well, that's not an effective oh, way no, of, yeah. of keeping COVID, no. you know, at bay. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So September turned out to be Tampa Bay Times Alumni Month. A couple of weeks ago, we had Chris Sherman on. Last week, we had Janet Keeler. Oh, all my faves. Yeah. <laughs> and there was one question that I, I asked, I saved to ask both of them as well as you, since you've been doing this for a long time. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen to food writing, the food scene, and the American palate over the past decades? And are they good changes or bad changes? Well, I think this past year, aside from the pandemic, the big story in food is um, kind of hashtag me too and Black Lives Matter as it as it relates to food writing. So there's been an incredible upwelling of, of energy and, and frustration at food publications um, like, you know, Southern Foodways Alliance or or, you know, Bon Appetit or whatever, um, mm-hmm. that, that a lot of people feel the gatekeepers are white males by and large, and that, that people mm-hmm. of color ha- have, the, have had their um, intellectual property kind of appropriated without, um, you know, giving credit where credit is, yeah, without giving credit where it's due. Right. Um, you know, I think that there have been a lot of... Um, you know, we've seen the Allison Roman flap. There have been a lot of uh, problems in food writing where 
white people have co-opted either flavors or ingredients or kind of traditions from um, international cuisines or, you know, ethnic cuisine is not a, a PC thing to say anymore. But but a lot of those, um, you know, whether it's kind of turmeric milk or, you know, whatever it is, without a, appropriately attributing the origin of those things. And I think that we're at a moment where we have enough self-reflection and enough insight to say we need to do better in terms of uh, giving all voices opportunities um, and crediting the incredible rich tapestry of food that has been brought here by people of color and, you know, by minorities. Right. So I, I think that that's a, an enormously positive thing. I think it's caused, it's caused some major disruption. I mean, we've seen at the James Beard Awards. I think that really the reason that those were canceled for this year and next part of it is the pandemic and not knowing how many restaurants, you know, high-end restaurants will make it out of this alive. But a lot of it is also, I think I heard that of the 32, so they, they, they did um, decide on the winners this year. They just dis- declined to announce who those were. So I heard that of the 32 um, winners, almost all of them were white people. And, you know, I think that the James Beard Foundation decided, you know, this is a, this is a moment for of real change and an opportunity to rethink how we're doing this. So I think that moving forward, there hopefully will be more opportunities for a range of voices. Um, and more diverse. Yeah. And, and so I think that that's been one of the biggest changes just real recently. You know, more broadly, mm-hmm. I think that because of social media, the speed with which you have trends move has has increased dramatically because, you know, all you have to do is see an Instagram post about something and you can try to incorporate it into your own cooking. Or, I mean, I see that, Mm -hmm. I see that from, for home cooks too, that we can kind of, everyone is much more fleet of foot and much more willing to try new things. It's much easier to get exotic ingredients. You know, you, Oh, I see a Frica Mm -hmm. recipe. I've never cooked with Frica. Go on Amazon, bing, bada, bing, you know, it's at my door in two days. So I think that there's a lot more experimentation, a lot more kind of international kind of, you know, like pastiche kind of cooking where you're you're willing to bring in a, a flavor that you've never encountered before into your own cooking. So I, I think that it's been a, a time of real innovation. That said, I do worry that the the shift towards delivery that it really does appeal to our our basest um, reptile brain, and that there's a a real a push towards craveability. That you order, you know, the the tater tot poutine or the disco fries, or, you know, <laughs> the big pile of garbage wings. That there's a guilty pleasure element to it that is always going to auger for foods that are maybe not as good for us. So I think that that's something right. I worry about a little bit in this new landscape where we're pulling real hard on on the delivery element of things. That it's it's burgers and fries and pizza and and you know deep fried things um, to a right. greater degree. And I think that we we are all going to have to think about that moving forward. You know, what do we want our food system to look like once the pandemic has revealed whatever the new normal is. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to say that this is uh, unhealthy or bad food, but we, so we cooked Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yesterday on Monday, we were watching MasterChef Junior and they made ramen and they were doing some other Asian foods. And we were like, oh, let's just order Booyah Ramen right now. (laughs) And we went to order it from Bite Squad 
but they were closed for the holiday on Monday. So then we said, all right, well, we'll just get hawkers then. Mm-hmm. But we did refrain. Normally when we order hawkers, we order enough food for like five people for a week. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we we refrained and only ordered three things. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear you're patronizing them because they, they do a good job. <laughs> and, and obviously, I, everybody knows that everybody has been cooking more. Mm-hmm. And I noticed uh, a post of yours that made me laugh on Facebook. You said, and you showed a, a photo of your the palm of your hand. I've cooked so much in the past six months that I have the same palm callus from my chef's knife that I had in the early 1990s. You have to complete what she said because it was funny. Oh, yeah. I didn't put that in my nose. But it was Maybe about- I'll get big hair next. Yeah. <laughs> my, ni- my 90s hair was a sight to behold. I mean, I look like a, like a chia pet. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, no, I've been cooking like a like a demon, you know. I mean, like, right. and and I think that you know it's been an opportunity to every day is almost like a like a Sudoku game. You know, you kind of like go to the fridge, you're like, okay, yesterday we ate Asian, so it's got to be something. How about Mediterranean today? Well, I've got half an eggplant, you know, two yams. You know? <laughs> so it's this kind of ongoing puzzle to not waste food and to kind of utilize what I have and uh, you know keep it interesting. So I think we've we've cycled right. around the world many times in the past few months, just you know. When Lori first met me, the first time she came over, she opened my refrigerator and there was like a bottle of beer and maybe milk. And that's oh, it. how times have changed. <laughs> he had nothing. He never. Oh, you should see his you, refrigerator you now. You can't fit one more thing in there right <laughs> that's now. great. I'm like, you've turned right. into me. You're good influence. <laughs> yeah. So Laura, besides a chef's knife, what's your favorite knife in the kitchen? Hmm. Well, I have a, I have, I mean, I have a whole bunch. I have like um. I'm a little bit of a knife hoarder, or are we? Um, mm-hmm. so you know I have a, a fairly wide array of options. You know I have a really good boning knife that I like a lot. I have a two eight-inch chef's knives that I love, and a, a ten-inch that I also really like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, I use a lot of like the smaller, you know, kind of bird's beak paring knife for for fruits and veg that are round. I don't think I really have a, a favorite knife. I mean, I have two that I generally use, eight-inch knives that I generally use for most things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. I, I tend to go towards the eight-inch chef knife, and Lori likes the six-inch six Santoku. Yeah, that's my mm-hmm. Oh, I, I have a Santoku that I like quite that's a bit. My, that's my favorite knife for sure. It, it just feels right with in my hand. It's a nice roll. Yeah. 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 So German steel or Japanese? Uh, well, that is Japanese, but I have a lot of German knives too. And actually, I have some kind of off-brand. I have F. Dick knives that I that I got in culinary school ten trillion years ago that are still perfectly. They look a little homely. Yeah. <laughs> get the job done. Nice. Someone who likes knives as much as we do. Yes. <laughs> so, Laura Riley, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Take care of yourselves. Thanks, you too. St. Pete is all about local, and this year we celebrate a local legend's 25th anniversary. Roland Oates Market and Cafe was founded in July of 94 by Bert Swain and Larry Schwartz. From the beginning, Roland Oates has made a commitment to provide St. Pete customers with the finest quality organic whole foods, nutritional supplements, and body care products at the most reasonable prices possible. And now they have a South Tampa location too. We go there for many items, but they are the only place that we go to buy our raw probiotics and other supplements. They have the best organic whole food selection in town, and on the flip side of that, 
They also offer a fantastic selection of wines and an unparalleled selection of local craft beer. Rollin' Oats has a cafe open daily which offers delicious sandwiches, burgers, soups, salads, bowls, wraps, entrees, and fresh-made smoothies, along with a variety of prepared and packaged take-home meals located in the market itself. Do you pride yourself with supporting local businesses? Well, put your money where your mouth is and get on into Rollin' Oats today. Rollin' Oats St. Pete is located at 2842 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Street North. And in South Tampa, you'll find them at 1021 North McDill Avenue. Check them out on the web at rollinoats.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N oats.com. And Rollin' Oats offers online ordering with curbside pickup. Man, we have really been eating up a storm the past few days. We have. It was nice to have a salad today. Yeah. We had steak, lobster, shrimp, pasta. So I was looking forward to a nice, crispy, crunchy, delicious salad. And speaking of salads, this segment is sponsored by Greenstock, which is a chef-driven and ingredient-focused salad and wraps fast casual eatery right in the heart of downtown St. Pete. Everything is fresh and nothing comes out of a can. You can even see all the ingredients right in the case. You can see the bright yellow ears of corn and plump red Roma tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And green stock is what we had for lunch today. It is. What did you get, Lori? Well, as usual, I had to get the Lori built, you inspired, major hundred of ingredients salad. So it comes with um, your choice of two base and uh, lettuce. Um, Basically, I had a romaine and spinach. And then you get four choices beyond that of... uh, I forget what they call it, but the things, you know. Additional additional items. items. Well, there's several different categories. But I had jicama, edamame, pickled red onions, and cucumbers. And then in addition to that, I also added tomatoes and black beans in that section. And then in the next section, I picked toasted pepitas and wasabi peas. And then I added a premium charred shishito peppers. And then I also added shrimp and... Very fresh Gulf shrimp. Yeah, that and, shrimp looked really oh, plump they, they, and fresh. delicious. It, very, very good. And I, I got my favorite ranch dressing. Oh my god, that's so good! That dressing. Yeah, and by the way, <coughs> they make all of their dressings from scratch. They do, and you can in-house. tell. You can yeah. totally tell. It was a great salad. I loved it. I, I did a sort of a repeat. I have had the spicy miso crunch before, and I had it again because it's one of my favorites. But this time. I added the uh, tuna. Which you're in love oh with, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, total, it's fresh tuna. It's so, so not good. Not out of a can. And, yeah. And the salad has baby arugula, the green stock blend, which is a trio of different types of lettuces and, that they have. Usually, there's some kale in there. Mm-hmm. The There's carrots, cucumber, edamame, which I love in there, shaved Brussels, also love that, and the wasabi peas. I love that crunch. Mm-hmm, me, too. And the, the miso ginger dressing is amazing. So check out Greenstock on the 400 block of Central Avenue in downtown St. Pete. They have contactless ordering and contactless pickup. Their hours are 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Saturday. And you can order on their website, which is eatatgreenstock.com. This is Chris Walker.
Up on the food blog, we have new reviews for Tiki Docks at Maximo Marina and Book and Bottle, which is a unique bookstore and wine bar combo. How cool is that? I like books. I like wine. But if I get too drunk, I don't remember what I read. But all of that can be found on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Next week on the show, we'll be talking to Ronica Whaley, the owner of food truck She's So Crispy. She got her start working for the Prime Minister of Malaysia, where she started a 250 food truck franchise in Kuala Lumpur before she came back to Florida to kick off She's So Crispy. Dang, girl, we can't wait to talk to you. If you'd like to send us fan mail, hate mail, or if you have any requests for interviews or restaurant reviews, just send an email to info at stpetersburgfoodies.com. That's it for this episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guest, Laura Riley. Thanks to Greenstock for lunch. And thanks to our sponsors, Roland Oats, The Zest Podcast, Noble Crust, Booyah Ramen, and, and Engine, Engine Number, number nine. 9. Our announcer is Candice Aviles from Meet the Chef and Channel 10 News. And our theme music is provided by the Chris Walker Band. We'd like to remind you to check out all the latest restaurant reviews, foodies news, top 10 lists, and updated happy hours on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Please give us a rating and review on whichever app you're using to listen to the show. And remember to share the show with your foodie friends. Until Until next time, time, may your food be hot and your bubbly cold. I think one of the things you said that you say in that piece is that we would be shocked at how much butter goes into everything. Yeah, I, I hope I haven't frightened anyone away, but it, it is usually the, the first thing and the last thing in, in just about every pan. Really? Uh, yeah, that's why restaurant food tastes better than home food a lot of the times. So <laughs> butter. Even when you say, look, I'm really, I don't want any butter or I don't want any... No, if you say absolutely no butter, um, just about every chef I know will, of course, uh, refrain But from most things it. have butter because butter makes things taste better. Yeah. It, it's a chef's secret. It mellows sauces. It gives it that, that restaurant sheen and, and emulsified uh, consistency that we love. And it's, you know, it's classic. We're, we're and it tastes on, good. Yeah, nothing like it. And it tastes good. So you say that by, the average person when they go out to dinner eats about a quarter stick of butter and doesn't know it. Well, assuming, assuming you're going to a French restaurant, a yeah. uh, classic French restaurant, and you have a little bread and butter, you know, but waiting for your appetizer to come on. But by the time you leave the restaurant, you've probably eaten about a stick plus. Sure. A stick plus. Yeah. <laughs>